Good morning again. Let's look to the Lord um, in prayer again before we open up his word. Father, I thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. And Lord, I pray today as we look into the Beatitudes and we look at the things that make for peace, uh, you would help us to be uh, looking inside uh, before we look anywhere else, to see that you have the rightful place that you should have within our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be true peacemakers in this world, uh, living countercultural to the way our world thinks peace is supposed to be found. But Lord, may we understand what the kind of peace that you have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably some of you um, like cars or things with motors that go fast. And when you hear the engine, uh, you, if it's a good engine, and it sounds powerful and it sounds neat, uh, you would want to see what's under the hood, what's making it tick, so to speak. And that's basically what we've been looking at for the past several weeks in the Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus is giving to the people around an idea, and he's saying, this is what makes my kingdom tick. This is what's under the hood. And if you want to see why the church is supposed to be so different, so special, look and see what I'm going to tell you. Because this is going to somehow differentiate this group of people called my church from the rest of the world. And in doing so, they're not just going to look a little bit different. They're going to look very different. And this difference is supposed to be so big and so awesome that it becomes salt and light. It becomes the uh, catalyst for change for the world. Uh, there are a lot of people today who have all different kinds of ideas how our world is supposed to change. And right now, they're all fighting. Uh, they all think they know the right idea. This is how it's supposed to happen. This is how it's supposed to happen. As we look at the Beatitudes, and we looked at blessed are the peacemakers last week, we're going to pick up, lay a little bit of that foundation, but try to make it very personal. So that as we look at the idea of being a peacemaker, can we say at the end of the day, yes, that's me. And if not, as we look at the progression of peacemaking, perhaps we can see that, yeah, this is where I am, this is where I need to go, because Jesus has written into our hearts, into our DNA, if you're a believer, that desire for peace, that desire to be somebody who brings peace, not somebody who brings division at all. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Uh, by way of foundation, a few things that we looked at. One thing is that the natural heart uh, of any person born in this world is not peaceful. They're not at peace with God. It's void. It doesn't come. So any efforts at peace in our country or in your life personally, it really doesn't matter. Whatever efforts you have towards peace will never happen if you start and end with yourself. You can sit there all day long and come up with the greatest ideas that you have. You can lobby for them. You can advertise them. You can do multimedia presentations. You can do whatever you want. It will not bring peace because the heart of mankind is at war with God. And that was one of the big statements that we said that everything that revolves around this world, the heart of every problem is the problem with the heart. If you don't get that, you will never find peace. Peace will be based upon ideas, people's preferences, people's opinions, and you know how well we all agree when we get together in a room. 
uh, when we all want to do something. Just take a group of 10 people and try to decide if you could eat out, where you would eat out. Uh, it, it just is, well, I want to go here. Well, I want Chinese. Well, I want this. I want that. And, and just something simple is not easy to get agreement on. To find true peace, the problem in our world is our hearts don't have it. Heart of every problem. You can look at all the riots that happen in our nation. You can look at the issue of abortion. You can look at racism. You can look at oppression. You can look at every social ill that you could think of. The heart of that problem is the problem of the heart. There isn't legislation. There isn't anything else that you can externally put upon a heart that will change that heart unless that heart changes. All of the societal ills, all of our personal ills will never, ever be solved. And we said one of the keys last week was that people are at war with each other because they're at war with themselves. They don't have a peace with God. And because they're at war with themselves, they are at war with, uh, because they're at war with God, they're at war with other people as well. Um, unless we can get to the place in our hearts, we are no longer at war with God. We're not war with, with ourselves we can find that there can be an avenue for peace. So we had a little diagram, and I'm just going to talk through it quickly. Uh, at the bottom of the diagram are all the people among us. And if you've ever played that game, you know who they are. Okay, this is, this is us. This is you. This is the, every person in the world who wants to have peace. They desire it. They want to live in a way God's created us for that. There's a void in us. It's a God-shaped hole. And we want to have that God-shaped hole filled. So people will look for an answer, and in looking for that, they want peace. The blue line represents everything under the sun, according to Ecclesiastes. Uh, everything that happens under there is just temporal within this world. It ends at death. Above it is another kind of peace. It's the John 17 kind of peace, uh, that they might be one just as you Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. A harmony, a shalom, a peace. God has it. The world wants it. But the problem is the world, for the most part, doesn't try to achieve it through God. They want to find their own ways, and hence enters all man's ideas. All of our ideologies, all of our thoughts, our philosophies, our political positions, all of those things people trust in, to find peace. But you know, and as I've already mentioned, people just don't agree. So as soon as they don't agree on which one of these will bring peace, it's division time. It's fighting time. It's name-calling time. It's a time to just get in my own little club, and we're going to believe the same thing, and those are the people that I'll associate with, and all others can just kind of take a hike because they're really not very smart people because they don't see it the way I see it. But because I believe it the way I do, I will group off. So in an effort for peace, we have division right off the bat because people, starting from themselves, never find a common ground that will be agreed on by other people. They want peace, they want to pursue it, but a dark heart prevents that from happening. Jesus came below the line. He entered time and eternity to bring a kind of peace that the world doesn't get, that the world could never achieve. And in doing that, he makes it so that that dark heart that doesn't have peace and doesn't see him can find him. 
Now, the big part of all of this, it's one thing to understand that all these other solutions, even though there may be you know, some, some bits of wisdom in there, they're not solutions. So for the church or individuals to divide over them fights against the one thing that could bring peace. Because in John 17, it goes on to say, whoops, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's supposed to be within the church a kind of unity that we are so bound together by the same common goal and banner that the world will look at us and see that Jesus is the path of peace. The unity of the church of Jesus Christ is that ticket, you could say, so that the world looks at the city set on a hill and says, they're kind of risen above all the bickering and all the fighting. In fact, they have a banner that is so grand and glorious, it helps them overlook their differences on all this stuff. So when the church lets those things invade it, all of a sudden it makes divisions and it becomes divisive. And when it does it, it negates the one thing that could actually bring peace into the world. So when Jesus talks in the Beatitudes and he talks about the peacemakers, he's elevating that unity to a place and letting them all know that there's going to be something special about my church. If my church is really firing on all burners and doing what it's supposed to, and you look under the hood, you are going to see a kind of peace and unity that you can't find anywhere else. The church is not a club. Clubs get together because they agree with each other. They all like the same things. They all think the same way. The church isn't like that. The church can bring together people who think very differently. And when they have the same banner of Jesus Christ up high enough, when it's the thing they worship above all else, far above all else, it brings them together because all these other things, they're superficial. They're, they're maybe partial answers that make things a little nicer, work better, but they don't change a heart. And that is the big thing. So what Jesus says to us in the Beatitudes is remarkably revolutionary because he's introducing a kind of peace that just doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, to look at it this way, and this is based upon Colossians, some verses we looked at last week, Jesus, all the fullness of God dwelled in him. Why did he do that? For a purpose. To reconcile, and that word reconcile is the exact same word as peacemaking. To reconcile all things to himself. Jesus came to make Peace. And he did that. He made peace by the blood of the cross. The cross becomes the major banner, the only banner worth fighting for, dying for, and dedicating our hearts to. But this is where it becomes mind-blowing. It's one thing to say Jesus and all the fullness of God. In him, well, he, he came to bring peace, but he left. He gave us his Holy Spirit. And in doing that, he said, now it's your turn. I am giving you the ministry of peacemaking. All that I did in the cross, establish the foundation. Now get in line, Christians. This is it. It's your turn to show the world a peace. And not only gave us the ministry, he entrusted to us the message 
of reconciliation. What it is that I am to be about. What am I supposed to be spreading when I go places? That message is the cross. And when that happens, that reconciliation happens, the peacemaking takes place. So that's, that's kind of the foundational work, is that Jesus came to make peace with people so that they could live in peace. And as he left, he said, you guys, pick up the ball. It's your turn to conduct yourselves in such a way as my church that they will see a peace that passes the understanding that this world has, that doesn't get caught up into all the divisiveness that is out there, that we become eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, there's an interesting, if you look at the placement of peacemaking in the Beatitudes, uh, as we look at it, there's a couple things to take note of right off the bat. It comes after the Beatitude about mercy and pure in heart. Okay, so keep that in mind. We're going to look at that in a minute and see why. It also has a correlation to meekness. Because Jesus gave out the Beatitudes. He didn't just give them out and say, here's just a bunch of nice little sayings, little proverbs to put on your little church calendar. Uh, no, he gave them for a, a reason, in a certain progression, and a certain way that they relate to each other. So in looking at them, we had said before that we start being poor in spirit, realizing I don't bring anything to the party. I don't have anything in me that will endear me to God. I am spiritually impoverished. So therefore, I become mourning. I'm desperate over my poverty. I need something bigger and bolder. I, I'm grieved because of my lack of righteousness. I need That's the guilt, the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. Then meekness becomes the next thing. Those that don't impose themselves on others that can control their strength because they realize they don't have anything really worth imposing on anybody. They become meek, and that's the progression. Then when I'm meek and I realize that I have nothing, then all of a sudden the mercy of God floods my soul. And as it floods my soul, it has so captivated me that I've been forgiven an unpayable debt that I raise the banner. So the first part of the Beatitudes is taking the banner of self down. It's get, get rid of you, because you have nothing to bring to the party. But on the other side, the merciful, when they understand the mercy that comes in Jesus Christ, they start putting a new flag up, the flagpole. And self comes down, and mercy comes up, and that's what they, they run under. It says, world, there has been a mercy given to me that is so big, I have to make that what I live by. That is the big deal of my life right now. Then comes the pure in heart. Those that only have one banner that they live under. Pure in heart just doesn't mean a righteous life. It has the idea of singly devoted, my eye on one thing only. So the pure in heart then take mercy, foist it, and keep it there. They don't let anything else get in the way. And then they become peacemakers. You see, unless I go through all the other steps, then I, I'm not really ready. I will not be a person who brings peace. I won't be at peace with myself. I won't be at peace with God. And if those things aren't true, I can't bring peace to the world that's around me. There's a definite progression in, in the fact that if I'm pure in heart, single-minded, uh, I'm free from the elevation of my own opinions, the elevation of my own ideas, genuine peace can come in. 
Not only was there a progression, but each one of these has a correlation to each other. Specifically today, meekness and peacemaking. If you're a person who has to spout your mind all the time, even when you're not asked, that's not meekness. It's not that control. But the meek person who, who empties himself of himself or herself has that disposition then to help make peace. And we're going to see how that unfolds in the progression of peacemaking. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, a heart that has one banner, and that banner is captivated by the mercy that God has given. And in doing this, when I get to that point and I see those things happening, I become a neutral party. Now, neutral party sometimes sounds like somebody who just doesn't care. They don't have an opinion. I'm not talking about that kind of neutrality. I'm talking about a person who can come to life. They can come to relationships without an agenda. They have gotten self put away in meekness. They've gotten self put away when they put the banner of mercy as the banner over their life. So as they come to people, they're not trying to prove an opinion. They're not trying to defend themselves because I have to be right. You know, they're not doing any of those things. There's a kind of shalom, peaceful, spiritual neutrality that comes in. They got nothing to prove. As they come into a situation that, that's pretty hostile, where people are mad at each other, they're not there trying to prove how right they are. They're trying to come to say, how can, how can I bring mercy into this situation? Because it's not about me anymore. It's about God. And since it's about him, I'm neutral as far as having a side that I'm taking anymore. I don't have a side. It's his side. I've joined his political party. I'm on his team. So as I live and work in this life, I'm not here with a hidden agenda or trying to preserve self in some way. So what I'd like us to do is look at the progression of peacemaking. If we really want to fulfill that role that God has for us and be those peacemakers, how do you get there? How do I get to be a place where myself is, you know, so far back, mercy is so high up that I am a peacemaker in the world that I live? The first part of it will be peace with God. And this is engaging his banner. I'd love to think that every single person here knows Jesus Christ today, and perhaps you do. But if you don't, this is ground zero. If you don't come to God and come to Jesus Christ with your knee bowed, your heart open for forgiveness of sins, peace will never be yours. That is the purpose of the cross, to come to Jesus Christ, to have my sins forgiven, so that I can engage with that banner of peace that he has. The scriptures say, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Stage number one. For anybody to have any knowledge of true peace, they need to know Jesus Christ. Without him, there'll be effort after effort after effort trying to make sense out of this life, this world, and it will not happen. Ephesians 2 says, remember, you were at one time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that, that a great place to be in the morning. Just, I've got no hope. I'm without God in the world. It's nothing. There's nothing there. But verse 13 in Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, our sins. So that's the, the job now. Once we come and have him take down the barrier, the wall that stands before, between himself and us, once that comes down, I start to understand and embrace peace. I see things differently. That line that I drew on the chart, the under the sun line kind of disappears. I enter into the unity that's in Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. I become partaker of all of that. So as I've joined with him, I start to understand peace anyway. But then, after that, i got to become peaceful with myself. I've got to find that peace and have it become established in my heart. Any of you ever fight with yourself inside? And you, and you struggle and you're just not, uh, things seem wrong and, and you're just dissettled and unquieted and you see disagreement here and it upsets you and inside, you, you don't really have a peace in your heart. There's things you're struggling with God about. And if everybody really knew and could see the depths of your heart, you'd find some things that you're just kind of clenched fists with him about. That, you know, I'm not happy about this, and I don't like this, and I wish that were different. And there's turmoil. Once we come and we engage the cross, Jesus wants to come in and establish the cross in our hearts. And that's where we start to become settled inside. To be a peacemaker, you can't have that unsettled feeling inside, that, that you're just not happy with anything that's happening. And you're not seeing God working the way that he is. So as establishing his banner uh, and lowering ours, a couple things we have to focus on is what do you do with people who disagree with you? What do you do with them? Because they're wrong, aren't they? You know, and somebody's got to convince them that they're wrong. Somebody's got to show them that you are right. See, that's where self gets out of there. Jesus comes in, and as we begin to establish his banner, we realize that, you know what? People don't have to agree with me. They don't. Because what's the big deal? Who am I so special to make them agree with me? Now, they do have to agree with God. And Jesus says, there's going to come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God. He's the one they have to agree with. And they may have a different opinion than me, but you know what? My opinion is not so high and lofty and so noble that they have to agree with me for, that, for, for me to have a relationship with them. I need to be concerned that I show them who Jesus Christ is so that Jesus Christ and them can come to an agreement because then peace can go to them. But if I have lifted up my own self so high that I have to have you agree with me for, you, for me to even like you, you've got the wrong banner. If I can't handle disagreement, it's because I've put my agenda up a little too high. I put myself up a little bit too high. When I put myself down, it's, you know what? they don't need to agree with me. 
They, they don't have to. Because what really matters is that they agree with God. And as they begin to agree with God, you know what? Later on, we probably will agree more. What do you do with people who disagree? You need to become free from self-interest. What about people who tick you off? They cross you. Do they, do they get your heart all frustrated and mad because of the way they drove or because of this or that or the way they believed or what they said in public and all those different things? People who cross me. You see, when Jesus Christ becomes the banner and mercy gets lifted up, I, be, I become free from self-concern. I'm not so worried anymore about how it affects me because I've put this, taken self and put put myself really far down on the line. I'm not a banner anymore. It really doesn't matter about me. It matters about Jesus Christ. It matters that they come into relationship with him and they find peace. But if I'm all mad and, and, and angry and spout off every time someone crosses me, I've not let the peace of Jesus Christ become established in my heart. What about my beliefs, my opinions? What I think are solutions as far as politics or anything else that you can think of uh, that goes on in the world. But of all beliefs, all of a sudden when Jesus Christ is lifted on high and I'm establishing him as the banner, I all of a sudden become free from misplaced passion. You see, when you live with Jesus Christ as the banner, the mercy is way up there. It's not like you don't believe anything anymore. It's not like you don't care. You may be very passionate about a lot of social issues. They may be important to you, and that should be good, but they shouldn't be misplaced in their passion, which, because you believe the way you do about a certain thing, all of a sudden you divide from everybody else, or you're angry at them because they don't agree with you. The passion for the cross goes so high, it eclipses the place of what I believe about all these other things. Because what I really need to know is that you know Jesus, that you know him the way I do. And when you do, all these other passions that I have, he may start teaching you them as well. You might start to value these things in the same way, but until there is peace with Jesus Christ and somebody has that banner, they'll probably never agree. I can't put my passions about my beliefs so high that when others disagree with me, I become so twisted and angry inside, I just got to get on Facebook. Because people on Facebook, they will listen to me, and I know I'll change them by spouting off. That happened a lot. Not that I have seen recently. In fact, there's one guy. Uh, oh, I can't find Here it is. Nope. If I find it, I'll tell you later. But basically, the idea was thanking somebody for being so passionate about sharing their political views on Facebook. And, and that just show me the light now. And I've changed forever. Signed, appreciatively, no one. You see, the spouting that we often do doesn't do anything but help our banner get a little bit higher. And say, yeah, I told them what I thought. This is what I think, and this is the world. I'm just going to let you all know about it. You see, as I become at peace with myself, I'm not at war with everybody else. I'm not passionately trying to beat them and win the argument. I am passionately trying to lift the name of Jesus. And as I do that, change happens. Nobody ever got argued into heaven. Nobody ever got insulted into heaven. You're such a blah, 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 blah. Here's Jesus. 
You should love him. It doesn't happen that way. When people are at peace with themselves, they unload their guns and they just want to show the world that there's a savior who madly loves them. Peace with God, peace with self, peace with others. As we let Jesus reign in our hearts, we all of a sudden find as we interact with other people, peace becomes the way of life with them as well. If I find myself at odds with others, probably the banner of self has been lifted way too high. And this comes in with flying his banner. How do I walk around every single day with the right banner waving and not lifting myself up too high? Scriptures say, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is kind of a quick tutorial on peace with others. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I want you to think of somebody in your heart and mind right now that you would say is a peacemaker. There's somebody who just seems to exude peace. They exude love. And as you're thinking of that person, and hopefully it's not too hard to come up with one, uh, but as you have them in your mind, just take a step back and watch them in action. See what they do. See how they maneuver among people and bring peace to the situation. And, and I'll, I'll bet you you'll see a couple of these characteristics in that. One is they've learned not to speak until they get the whole story, until they've walked in the other person's shoes. They're not the kind of person, as soon as they hear one comment, spout or spew and just start going off. No, they're, they're actually a little bit back listening, wanting to hear the whole story. Where did you come from? How did you come to that conclusion? Why do you think the way you do? They want to get the whole picture in because in peacemaking, they're not out to prove a point. They're out really to love a person. So right away, they're not the person who's quick to speak. They're quick to hear and they're quick to listen. This person that you're thinking of probably waits to be asked for their opinion, asked for their thoughts, invited into conversation rather than the kind of person as soon as you meet them, oh yeah, what I think you should have done. Why, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do it that way? Those kind of questions. Don't they make you feel peaceful when somebody does that? Say you screwed something up and something's not right. And they go, well, what'd you do that for? Without listening, without asking, they just kind of, the peacemaker doesn't do that. Uh, it, there's none of that, um, why didn't you, why don't you, or how could you have? They kind of wait to be invited for a critique. They wait to be invited in for their thoughts, their opinion. Um, this might be a newsflash, but let me just let you in on this. The world and people are not sitting around waiting for your opinion and for you to correct them. Can you believe that? They're not just waiting for you to just walk into a situation and tell them how wrong they are. They're not, they're not eager for that. You see, a peacemaker doesn't come in with the guns out 
and telling you what you could have, should have, would have, and, and should have done made to make this happen? And how did you screw up so bad? They listen. They want to understand your heart. They abandon nose rubbing. How do you feel when someone says, I told you so? Isn't that a lovely thing to hear when things don't go right? They don't say things like that. Or, or, or they don't subtly remind you when maybe they told you something and you didn't listen. This kind of person doesn't come in and say, you know, that's why I said what I said. Kind of lifting themselves up to beat you down just a little bit more. If you had only listened to me, I put myself back up there again. You see, that's not what a peacemaker does. They are slow to speak, slow to anger. They want to see the whole picture. They walk in the other person's shoes sympathetically. And at the end of the day, and they've heard the story, and they still don't understand the other person or maybe disagree completely with them, they make a choice. And that choice is that I will show mercy and grace to that person. Their choice is not separation. Their choice isn't anger. Their choice isn't writing you off because I just don't get you. Their choice is, you know what? I've seen it. I've tried to understand. And I don't get you. I don't get how you can believe the way you do. But you know what I'm going to do right now? I will show grace and mercy. I will love you the way Jesus loves me in all of my sin. The peacemaker is often seen interpersonally by what they don't say, by how they hold back and show the grace and mercy of God. First Thessalonians says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. King James says, study to be quiet. In other words, hold back. Mind your own business. Be a peacemaker in the world. Don't foist your ideas. Uh, mind your own affairs to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. The idea of restraint and loving mercy towards other people. After I get that down and I have peace with God, he's established in my heart. I'm not living as a, a Coke bottle that's all shaken up inside. I have peace with him. I start to have peace in relationships with other people. I get to join a very privileged group after that, and that's the last group. People who help establish peace between two others. And you see, you can't do this. You can't bring others together when you're at war still yourself, when you're unsettled. But this level of peacemaking, they are precious to the church. They are precious in relationships. They're precious in families because their peace now has permeated them so much. It's affected how they treat other people because they're living at peace with them as much as it depends on them. Now God has said, you get to do something even more special. You can bring two people together who are at odds with each other because the peace that you have found has become so awesome and so special. We read these words in Sowing the Banner. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, that's the neutrality we talked about, and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. These are those that sow peace in the world, that can go out there and bring people who are at odds together with each other. That's why the scripture says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men, sowing his banner. And, and this is not a job that pays real well. This is not a job where people are going to say, well, here comes the peacemaker. In fact, this is one of the hardest jobs in all of Christianity. To be humbly peacemaking means you are a behind-the-scenes person that genuinely loves people. And you may take it on the chin sometimes. You may find that you're not always appreciated. It's thankless, but I'll tell you, this person who brings peace between others is doing the work of Jesus Christ, doing that work of reconciliation. Sometimes the Bible, when it speaks to us, is kind of nuanced. Sometimes it's direct. It tells us, boom, this is wrong. Do not do this. Do not commit murder. It's so obvious. There's other times that the scriptures tell us something, but it does it in such a way that you kind of have to read between the lines and, and try to understand why they said what they said. And when it comes to peacemaking, some of those um, nuanced things come through in the scriptures in some very interesting way. And I just kind of want us to look at this passage here for a moment and, and try to look at it in a subtle way and say, why are these certain things said the way they are? Because at first look, when you read through this, this just looks like a list of the disciples. And if you've been a Christian for a while and you read your Bible, sometimes when you get to a passage like this, you just kind of skip through it. Yeah, I know all those guys. Let me just get on to something else. And, and you don't even really think about what's being written there. But let's just read it together and, and kind of sink in a little bit, observe it. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, let's keep, just want to go on and read something else. I want to read something I'm going to get something out of. That's just the list of people, and I already know that song from Sunday school, and I know who the disciples are. But you know, as you look at that, there's a couple people listed there who have descriptors, and they don't all have descriptors. In fact, if you were to look at James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, does anybody know what they're called? Couple head, you can say it out loud if you want. Sons of thunder, but that's not here. But you look at it, Simon, called a zealot. That's Matthew. It points out, and this is Matthew pointing it out himself, that he was a tax collector. Well, okay, that's interesting. But you need to put that into a context. And you need to put it into the context of the day and put it to this context that we live in. Simon, a zealot. You could say he worked against the government, okay? He was, you could say, a right-wing, small government guy who thought the state should keep out of people's business. Don't say amen, okay? I don't want to hear any of that. But he's a zealot. That's what he thought. That's what he 
believed. Do we have those people in the world today? Absolutely. Matthew, it says, though, is a tax collector. What does that mean? He worked for the government. For the government. He was a left-wing, big government guy who made a career out of collecting taxes for the state. That's what he did. That's who he was. Now, these two guys probably didn't hang out together much at all before meeting Jesus. Because you've got the right wing and you've got the left wing, but they're in the list of disciples. They didn't believe the same thing politically. They didn't agree with each other. But what does Jesus do? He's a peacemaker. He comes in and he says, you two, on this earth, you would never get along. But I want to do something special. I'm going to bring you into my kingdom and let you experience a unity and give you a banner that is so high that you can come together and live in community and be part of my kingdom program as different as your beliefs about what the political world should look like. Is that amazing? Is that astounding? To me it is, because you know what? I see in churches all the time people so mad at somebody else's political beliefs. And, and, and they put that banner way up there. I really can't, can't get you. I don't understand you, so I'm going to avoid with you, or I'm going to fight with you. Jesus says, I'm the peacemaker. I'm bringing you guys a banner so awesome, so high, that you will rally under it, even as different as you are, for the cause of the cross, and you're going to go out. If you look at the context, these disciples are about to go out and make peace. They're going to take the message of peace to the world, not through a political channel, not through an ideology, not through a philosophy, but through the cross of Christ. And because that banner is so inclusive, they're brought together in such a way that they can work side by side for the cause of Christ. Despite their opposing political viewpoints, Matthew and Simon were friends united under the banner of Jesus Christ. Matthew emphasizes this, I think, as a tax collector and a zealot living in community, to show Christians there's supposed to be a hierarchy of loyalty among you. A hierarchy of loyalty. In other words, you're not loyal to a party, an idea, an ideology, even if it's yours that you love so much. That's not where your loyalty lies. It lies in the cross, and the difference between the two is so huge. That is why the church can have unity with people who disagree because the banner of Jesus is seen to be so awesomely beautiful, so high and lifted up, and it's seen as the only solution that all of the other things are trying to solve. And when Christians lose sight of that and they go, they go down under the sun and they banter about all the other stuff and they protest about this and they riot about it, it's like, you know what? No. Jesus changes hearts. Do not forget that, church. He is the one that I lift high and up. And as I do that, all those other differences fade away and we can come together. Those people, those peacemakers, shall be called the sons of God. That is a beautiful, beautiful picture 
first item to recognize in that in the original language. It means when they're called the sons of God, it's not as if I walk over here and say, Alice, you are a daughter of God. Debbie, you're a daughter of God. Mike, you're a son of God. Well, it's not a real big deal that I just said that. You know, you feel, oh, wow, I'm embarrassed. He pointed me out. But the fact that I said it carries about this much weight. But if it were God and God alone who walked into the auditorium and called you by name and said, you are my child, with a big smile on his face, because that's what this verse is saying. It's God and God alone who has the right to it, and he is the one in an endearing way saying, you are a child of mine. Now, there have been times where my children, our children, have brought us great joy. Now, that's not always the case, but there's times where they have, and I've seen them do something, and I'm like, yeah, that's my boy, that's my girl. And you smile and say, that's mine. This is what Jesus is like with the peacemakers. You will be called the sons of God. I'm going to smile and proudly say, you're doing exactly what I called you to do. You look like me right now because you are peacemaking in a world that doesn't know peace and couldn't get it on its own even if it wanted to. They are and shall be owned by God as his genuine, genuine children by reason of their great likeness to him. Self is gone. No more foisting of my opinions. Not making my opinions and beliefs the things that I fight for. I want to see Jesus loved and embraced by the people who are around me. They share his passion. And may it be said of us that the nuts, there's a lot of nuts here, we fall close to the tree. We show who he is. When he's given us the ministry of peacemaking, we've stepped up to the plate. We know him. We're at peace inside our hearts. We act peacefully to others. And then we engage in a role to bring people to him, that we sow peace. Mentioned last week at the end of the sermon, this passage of scripture, when Jesus said he drew new drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would, you, would, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That's kind of where our heart ought to be with our country and our nation. Not angry and mad, but broken to look at what's happening around us and all the oppression and all the things that we see and weep and pray and say, God, would this world just know the things that make for peace? But it seems hidden. It seems like they can't see it. And the peacemaker says, let me step up. Let me be salt. Let me be light. Let me be the one who perhaps you use to open the eyes of those that are blind. You don't get there by fighting. You don't get there through, through force. You get there through the love of Jesus Christ. Would that you knew the things that make for peace. That is the heart of God. May that be the heart of his church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son into this world to bring 
peace. And Lord, there are many times where your church has kind of dropped the ball, where we've uh, kind of gotten into the world's way of achieving peace. We fight the way they do. We divide the way that they do. Lord, at this time in history, may we pray for a revival that will bring your church together in such a way that the peace that is ours becomes the peace that is so attractive that our world wants it. Our world asks about it. Lord, help us to be true peacemakers so that we look just like you. In Jesus' name, amen.